This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, my name is Harry Helling. I'm the Executive Director here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. I'd like to welcome you to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Speaker Series. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening, Dr. Dee Dee Lyons. Dee Dee is a developmental biologist who uncovers the instructions for life carried in cells. Deidre, or Dee Dee, became interested in questions about the origins and evolution of animal body plans as an undergraduate at Mount Holyoke College and as a research assistant at UCLA. She went on to pursue her PhD in molecular and cell biology at UC Berkeley, studying the control of asymmetric cell division in the leech Helobdala. For her postdoctoral work, she went on to Duke to study gene regulatory networks in sea urchins, in 2009, Dee Dee took an embryology course at the Marine Biological Lab at Woods Hole in Massachusetts. It embarked on research on the embryology of the slipper snail, Crepidula. Dee Dee then came to Scripps Oceanography in 2016 and established her own research group in the Marine Biology Research Division. She and her group study a range of echinoderm and spiralian animals using comparative gene regulatory network analysis, live cell imaging, and functional studies to understand questions such as, how does a single fertilized egg cell transform into a complex animal? And why does the embryo of a marine organism like a sea slug develop differently from that of a sea urchin? This talk is a tribute to the late Dr. Roger Sen and his discovery of green fluorescent proteins in the jellyfish Acoria victoria, soon to be displayed again here at Birch Aquarium at Scripps. As Dee Dee notes, without Roger's pioneering work, most of her research would not be possible. Please join me in welcoming Dee Dee for her talk entitled, Sea Urchins and Sea Slugs, Probing the Evolutionary Mysteries of Life's Stunning Diversity. Thank you so much. Hello, Hello everyone. So I'm very pleased to be here tonight to talk to you about some of the research that uh, myself and my lab have been doing. Um, as was mentioned already, I'm interested in the diversity of life. Unfortunately, with this group, it's uh, going to need no convincing of how interesting and beautiful animals that live in the ocean are. So what I'm showing here on the left is a range of echinoderm embryos, so sand dollars and sea urchins and sea stars, both their embryos and the adults. And on the right, I'm showing a range of different mollusk embryos, some shelled and unshelled, and these are some of the animals that I work on. But I thought before I got into talking about why I study their development and evolution, I'd tell you a little bit about myself and how I got here. And this, I think, will um, relate to some of the educational goals that I have, which I will touch on at the end of the talk. So we'll try and get back to this full circle. So I have two long-term developmental biology projects in my life. Um, on the left is a picture of me, a spontaneous picture of me doing work as a postdoc with my then um, daughter, who now is 10 years old. But this kind of summarizes my life in one picture. I uh, balance these two things, motherhood and, and science, which is great. And my other love is the people that work in my lab and that I get to do work with. And I'm quite privileged to be here at Scripps doing research with ex people who are excited not only about science and cell biology and genetics, but also about the environment. All of us are kind of 
uh, tide pool geeks, and you know you could see us on weekends out looking for animals. And we all feel very privileged to be here. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the work that we've been doing. Um, that includes work that was started with the discovery of GFP. So a little bit more about me is a sprawling picture of Los Angeles. Um, which is where I grew up, and maybe no surprise, I had no interest in biology as an undergraduate. I wasn't one of those kids that said, oh, I've been interested in bugs in my backyard for my whole life. Definitely not. Like, absolutely not. Um, this is the next place I lived, which is the middle of New York City. Um, also, kind of no particular interest in the natural world except for going to the Natural History Museum. And, um, and maybe because of living in an urban jungle, I really had no connection to science or biology growing up. I was much more interested in questions of, um, of history and literature, and um, I was into theater, and I thought that maybe I'd go on into college and I would um, study history, and then I'd go on and be a lawyer, because I liked to be in front of people, and I loved to argue, and I'm really opinionated, so I thought that that would be the perfect job for me. So, but when I wanted to go to college, I was just sick of urban life, so I was looking for something far away, and the criteria were there has to be ivy on the walls, uh, there has to be a library where I will not have to leave for most days, and I would not be distracted by a busy urban life, so I picked um, this quite beautiful spot in the Pioneer Valley, Massachusetts, in Mount Holyoke College. And I picked Mount Holyoke of all the leafy places you can go um, in the Northeast um, because they actually had a, one of the world-class medieval studies departments. So that was kind of what I was into. And I thought I would go and study stories and the history of stories and how human beings tell stories. And one of the reasons I loved that um, was because I think by looking at stories and the way human beings tell stories, it holds our thoughts and our dreams over time. And especially things like creation myths, um, or ancient myths, they change over time, and we all, each generation, puts our own uh, spin on it. So here's a couple examples from uh, the Snow Queen story, um, going from the original works and illustrations up to something like um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the penultimate picture there, all the way up to something like Frozen. And each generation has changed their thoughts about it, and not only can you learn something about fundamental human thoughts in the myths themselves, but you see them changing over time, and it's kind of a recording of how humans change their thoughts. So that's kind of what I thought I'd do for a few years before going to be a lawyer, doing something that actually could pay the bills. Um, and so why I picked Mount Holyoke, it had the leafy greens on the outside, it had this beautiful library, and they were very famous for having a medieval studies department. But at a good liberal arts school, you have to take your general ed classes. So uh, the first week on my dorm, the other girls said, why don't you just come with us to the biology class because then we'll help you through it and you need to do it anyway and we're all into biology so we'll just help you get through it. So I, um, in typical form, I walked into the wrong section of that class. Um, all my friends went into something that was like plant biology and I wandered into um, a section taught by this man, Sandra Schutten, who turned out to be a Darwin scholar. Um, and he was a different type of storyteller, and I just became fascinated by the way you could, um, I could supplant history of human beings um, for my desire to understand stories and how humans tell stories, and uh, it was supplanted by the natural world and especially marine organisms. So in the first class that I took with Stan, he showed us this very famous paper that's about 60 pages long um, that's about the evolution, convergent evolution, parallel evolution of fish and squid, or cephalopods. And it asked questions um, about how those two animals became very advanced independently over time. And here's one famous example. The cameral eye of an octopus is shown on the left. 
And the cameral eye of a human is shown on the right. And amazingly, even though the last common ancestor of a squid and a human did not have this type of eye, this form of sight was evolved independently in these two lineages and to amazing degrees. Um, and even it's famous that the humans have a kind of um, maybe less well-adapted features than the octopus version where they have their optic nerves going um, in and cutting off some of the um, light-recepting cells. So this is a famous example not only of how smart and able cephalopods are, and, um, but also convergent evolution. And what I mean by convergent evolution, as I mentioned, is that we know that the last common ancestor of those two animals did not have an eye. The same way, for instance, we know that the last common ancestor of a bee and a bat did not have a wing. Um, so they evolved those things independently. And what I found when I was an undergraduate, the way you determine that that is the case is that you have to do phylogenetics. So you have to um, go in a systematic way to compare organisms in some type of um, rigorous a quantitative way to understand how distantly related they are to one another. So you can see here in this um, phylogeny, we're seeing that the mollusks, which the cephalopods belong to, are very distantly related to the vertebrates where uh, humans and primates are evolved. And what I was fascinated by, again, history, where does it come from, the things that are unknown. Um, I was interested in what is, is labeled here the hypothetical ancestor of all of this diverse form, which uh, I learned lived uh, 550 million years ago. So then I moved on to being excited about what I thought basically is a creation myth in its own right, because we can never go back to understand what the early Earth was like when animals arose. But um, we do know from the fossil record that the Cambrian explosion happened about 540 million years ago. And by this time, there was already an incredibly diverse set of organisms. And we can find um, not exact um, lineages that exist still today, but we can find the forebearers of sponges and um, and arthropods and mollusks and annelids uh, within this group. And so then I became fascinated with learning more about this. How, how different do these organisms back then look to the ones that live now? How do they become different from one another? And what drives those differences became my new set of history questions. So I spent a lot of time reading books. And if any of you are interested in these types of topics or know someone who might be interested, I would suggest these three. Um, just a fun fact, the one on the right, The Shape of Life, actually starts with a great story about why explorers went to Antarctica to, um, to explore. And one of the motivations was to go to get penguin eggs to see what their embryos looked like, because they thought that had the key to figuring out the history of vertebrates. So if you're into that, here's three good examples. And then um, from that start at Mount Holyoke, I really was lucky to go do science with other people. And another theme of my talk is going to be that um, I think it's really important to engage undergraduates and high school students and young people in the actual research project. And of course, being here at Birch, we, um, it's a great place to start. I had um, the lucky um, and privileged access to a couple different types of research experiences. So one was at UC Los Angeles, where I would come back and hang out with my family when I wasn't uh, out in Mount Holyoke. And I met this wonderful woman named Ruth Gates, who, if any of you have seen the Chasing Coral um, documentary, she's one of the main characters in that. Um, but she, at the time before she went um, back to Hawaii to um, to work on trying to save corals and, and engineer corals to have more resilience. She was a research associate in the lab that I happened to pick, and she taught me everything and was so patient with, I knew nothing, and I made so many mistakes on her watch, and um, she was just very gracious about it, and it really um, set up a role model for me early in my career. And I also had the privilege of going to marine labs um, like Friday Harbor, 
labs, which is where um, some of the, the work that was um, done to find GFP was also conducted. So um, keeping these marine labs around the country safe and funded and supported is really important, as, as well as supporting places like the Birch and Scripps. So from that, I decided, I learned by the time I left Mount Holyoke that I really was a developmental biologist. So now I'm going to go into a couple um, slides and a, for a little bit to tell you about some of the questions that I, I ask now. But it really started with these um, mentors who were willing to, um, to work with me when I wasn't necessarily the top student in the class. I didn't know the most of anybody in my class, but they found um, something in me about my curiosity and willing to learn, um, and they took a chance on me, and I, um, that's really important to me in my own teaching here at UCSD, which I'll get to at the end. Okay, so most developmental biologists ask this question. How does a single-celled fertilized sperm and egg come together that's one cell that has a fused genome, the first time that particular set of genes has ever existed in the planet ever, and how does it morph and transform into something you know, as beautiful as a ballerina, and you can then insert any other type of animal you find fascinating there on the right. How does that process happen? And if you talk to uh, cell and developmental biologists, you will often hear, or even evolutionary biologists, you will often hear the idea that the genotype is coding for phenotype, um, that the particular order of A, T, Cs, and Gs in our DNA is going to, to tell us what type of person you're going to be. So this is you know, the basis of personalized gene therapy and other things. We sequence part of your DNA and we tell you what type of feature you're going to have, how long you're going to live, whether what you're going to die of, what types of things you're going to be susceptible to. So there's this idea that it's kind of a one-to-one -one relationship. But developmental biologists think more of um, the process of development as being the translation of that genotype to the phenotype. So um, yes, genes are being turned on and being used to uh, drive differentiation in cell division so that different cells in that embryo become eye cells or skin cells or gut cells um, over time. But there's a lot of mystery in between the genotype and the phenotype, and that is what a lot of developmental biologists um, study and are interested in. So just a refresher, when I say kind of the translation of uh, genes to genotype to phenotype, um, brief refresher on the central dogma, which is that the nucleus holds the DNA. And so what you're showing here is um, red and green portions of the DNA that are uh, making both the uh, intron and exons. And then you would um, make mRNA, so you have transcription that makes an mRNA molecule, which um, people think is actually the original molecule, that RNA came first before DNA. Um, the RNA is processed, so it cuts out the parts that will not make a protein, and then it leaves the nucleus and is translated into proteins. And then the primary sequence of a protein folds into a particular shape. And this, um, one of the most famous proteins in um, biology is um, the green fluorescent protein. So what I'm showing here is a little cartoon on the top left of um, a part of the um, DNA that says, come here and start turning on GFP or a gene you're interested in. And the interesting thing is you can have this primary sequence of the DNA of the green flu fluorescent protein, but you can put it right next to a protein that you care about. So you can put it next to a protein that might be um, localized to the nucleus, so you can see where the nuclei are. You can send this protein and tag it to the membrane, so you can see what part of that of that part of the cell is, um, is acting. You can basically link it by fusing your gene of interest of the DNA to, your, to the D DNA that is the GFP. And then that becomes translated, it goes to the central dogma, it ends up being a protein, and this amazing protein that we found uh, 
in the natural world um, happens to glow green. And you can see here, as um, we heard before, that it's basically in all sorts of research. You can see it in all of the major model systems here from flies and um, mice and nematodes and fish and primates. And so um, the function and the shape of a protein is really important for how it acts. And um, what we're interested in developmental biologists is if the DNA is the same in all cells, how do the different cells become different from one another if everybody shares, if every cell shares the same DNA? And I'm going to show you a busy slide here of, of one of the explanations of how that happens. Um, but what's important to, to not get overwhelmed by all the different squigglies, um, but the point is that the DNA is in gray in each one of these examples, and the colored... Um, curls are the model of a protein. And proteins form particular structures, like we saw GFP has this kind of barrel, characteristic barrel shape. These are all transcription factors. So these are proteins that sit down on the DNA and tell the cell to turn a particular gene on. And it turns out that these genes are not regulated the same way in every cell. Some cells get a certain set of transcription factors that say become eyes, and a different set of cells get transcription factors like these here on this slide um, that say they should be a gut cell or something something else. And all of this research, dissecting all of this, the process of that central dogma and what these proteins do has mostly been worked out in model systems. Um, so I'm showing kind of the six or seven major model systems. And when we mean model systems, what it really means is trying to model things that we care about in humans at, um, in smaller animals that are easier to keep, that have genetics that are more manipulable. And these uh, Animals have characteristics like um, they can keep the, their full life cycle in the lab. They have a fast generation time. They're quite small. They're direct developing, so they don't have multiple stages of their life cycle that you have to worry about. They're genetically tractable, meaning both they can do genetics, like pedigree genetics. You mate them together and see different mutations, as well as being able to genetically manipulate particular genes in specific ways. And their genomes are sequenced. And basically every type of drug that, sh that you might take or the vaccine that you might have gotten has been developed in these using the knowledge at the molecular and cellular level of these particular animals. Um, and we have co uncovered many fundamental things about biology by having these model systems, but it does not get at some of um, the ways that organisms are quite diverse. And since these are all terrestrial or uh, freshwater animals, there's really very few model systems within the marine world. And as we saw as an example of um, GFP, you might want to study marine animals for all of the bizarre things that they do because you can use some of the, not only is it beautiful and interesting, um, but you may also be able to harness some of the biology to, to use for our benefit. So there's many examples of that. There are multiple Nobel Prizes given for work in marine organisms, um, and the example of GFP being one of the more recent ones. So as I showed this picture before, I'm really interested in, in um, going back to expand the model system. So I want all of those things that I mentioned. I want genomes. I want tools to manipulate the genomes. I want to be able to keep them in the lab. Um, I'm willing to put up with a little bit more difficulty in growing them. Uh, but I want to get at this di incredible diverse biology. And as I mentioned, I use these two groups, echinoderms and mollusks. So I'm going to show you one example of kind of the work that we do with echinoderms. So these are some movies where uh, one of my postdocs, Vanessa Barone, has injected the eggs of a sea star, which is on the left, or a sea urchin, which is on the left, and a sea star on the right, with um, mRNAs. So you can make the mRNAs in vitro of um, fluorescent proteins, like green fluorescent protein or red fluorescent protein in other colors. And as I mentioned, they've been hooked up to different uh, tags. So 
On the left, you're seeing yellow, which is membrane. So the uh, form of GFP has been fused to a protein that should go to the membrane. And then um, in the turquoise, you're seeing a different um, GFP, so it would come in a different color, being fused to a protein that is sent to the nucleus. So you can see it live. And on the right, as the similar tools, but in different colors, in a C star. And so these types of tools really broke open the things that we can, we can study, especially in the live embryo. And one of the things that we're interested in here is that on the left, the sea urchin embryo will end up making a biomineral in its larval uh, life. And, um, and on the right, the sea stars do not make any biomineral at all during their larval life. And so we're interested in trying to understand kind of a material science perspective and cell differentiation questions about why um, one type of embryo will go on to make a hard part and another embryo will not and, and use some tools, including um, things like GFP. So now I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, another set of organisms, the mollusks, which I'll spend most of my time talking about today, and um, a unique feature of mollusks that allows us to get at these um, questions of how body plans evolve, how do you get different body plans like the ones that we saw already existed in the Cambrian. And um, I find this a, a very unique group to study this in, and what's cool about it for me is that um, on, the, on the periphery of this slide, I'm showing all different types of adult forms of different organisms. So some of these are um, annelids, segmented worms, some of them are mollusks, some of them are flatworms, which are a different type of word that's, worm that's unsegmented. And while their adult forms are incredibly diverse, um, and what we would call different enough to be considered different phyla or completely different body plans. Um, it turns out that many of these organisms share a developmental program that is very similar. So I could hand you an embryo that looks like the one in the center, and you would have no idea whether it would be a segmented worm that makes no shell whatsoever, or it would grow up into something um, like a scallop that has two shells, or whether it would have segments or not, or where it would live, or what it would do. Um, and this is very unique. This doesn't exist in other organisms. And so we're taking kind of advantage of this fact to understand somewhere between this early embryo, where all of them are very similar, and adulthood explains some of the changes that probably happened over large evolutionary distances to give rise to different organisms. And the important thing is we can um, homologize or compare these tissues at individual cells um, in the embryo. So I'm going to give you an example of how that might work. Okay, so for instance, um, this particular cell that I marked right here in yellow um, gives rise to mesoderm. That's trunk mesoderm in both of these animals, but in an annelid, it becomes segmental trunk mesoderm, and in a mollusk, it is not segmented. And what's also interesting about it is that um, um, it will also give rise to the germ cell in all of these animals. Uh, the two cells that I'm marking in blue are going to be the left and right eye cells of these animals. So the eye in, in all of these diverse animals come from these um, same cells, the left and right. And here's an example of how that, that works. So this process is called spiral cleavage. So we're going to do a little embryology 101 type of thing here. What you're looking at on, in A and is um, the cell, uh, uh, egg, uh, the fertilized egg dividing into two. And we're going to ignore the names for right now, but um, they divide again into four cells. And then this E through H in the middle section, we're looking at the side of the embryo, and you see that there are these smaller cells that are being born off. And it doesn't matter what they're called. The important thing is that we can name them. So every single embryo that does this, we can give it a name, and we know that it's the same thing, so we can find that particular cell from embryo to embryo. And not only can we find it from embryo to embryo in a particular species, but you can find this exact cell, embryo to embryo, in animals that have been diverging since before the Cambrian. So somehow this particular cleavage pattern 
has remained for a very long time. And not only the cleavage pattern, but what we would call the fate of the cells. So not only are there cells in the particular place, but um, we've done lineage tracing, including using things like GFP, to label that particular cell and say this cell in this animal gives rise to the germline, and this cell, the same cell in another animal, also gives rise to the germ cell. And of course, not every single cell is the same, but that's what's exciting about it. Some of them are same, and some of them are different, and you can piece together where some of those changes came from. So I'm going to give you a little example. So in many mollusks, um, not all, but many species of mollusks, there's two uh, handednesses to the shells. So you can see here a bunch of examples where if you pick up a shell, most of the time when you uh, pick up a shell and you look at it and you want to put your hand inside the shell, only your right hand would fit into it. But there's a number of species that also have the opposite chirality um, called sinistral coiling where you can put your left hand in and there's different morphs of these, of these animals. And there's arguments about why this might exist. Perhaps um, a predator has become adapted to getting into the shell if it has one more uh, coil, but if there's a population that has the other coil, then it kind of throws it, and it will sustain this opposite coiled uh, population over time. That's one example. Turns out that work that was done um, at the turn of the century, uh, in the 1900s, late 1800s, the turn of the last century, um, figured out that these differences actually show up at the two-cell stage. So I just showed you an example of how the cleavage is happening. Um, it turns out that the coiling can be seen in the arrangement of these cells, even at that early stage. So something about how the actual spindles are forming, the mitotic spindles of where the cells are born, is actually controlling that handedness. So it happens very, very early. So that's just one example of how modifying the spiral cleavage program um, can give you rise to different um, really obvious shapes in the adult. So um, I'm, again, interested in using, kind of developing more tools for understanding how this process happens. And um, like model systems, you kind of have to, um, you have to pick one or two model systems and, and put your energy into it, because it takes a lot of work to develop all these tools for particular species. So um, I have focused in on a couple, that, one or two that I'll talk about today. Um, so here's one. This is one of the snails I work on called Crepidula, which you mentioned. This is an animal that's expressing GFP on its membranes in green, and then we labeled um, a blastomere, one of those early cells in the embryo, with a red um, dye that is not a, a protein. It's not a, um, it's not a fluorescent protein, but just a dye that is fluorescent. And we made movies of this process happening, and it turns out that we can find um, the origin of cells that are going to give rise to mesoderm and ectoderm, as well as um, some kind of spider-like cells that are down here that we've found out are going to be the germ cells. And so we can make um, these fate maps and try to understand how this how this process works. But what we'd really like to do next, what our lab is working on now, is being able to genetically manipulate these organisms. And the tool that came along just while I was in grad school at Berkeley, um, partly developed by Jennifer Doudna, who was also at Berkeley, and, um, uh, and another floor for me, um, is the technology of CRISPR, where now we can apply genome editing to almost any organism on the planet. So it was really exciting. And in fact, Crepidula was the first lophotrochozoan, or this group of spiralians that all have this spiral cleavage pattern, was the first one um, to have the CRISPR technology demonstrated in 2015. And in the meantime, a couple other mollusks have also had it. So this Limnea, the ones I showed you with the left and right coiling, have also had CRISPR technology um, used in them, as well as something like Cassostria and also squids. Um, so a range of mollusks now have been demonstrated that CRISPR is possible, and that means that finally we can go in with these really precise tools and manipulate the genome. So we can take genes out, we can put genes in, we could put GFP in, um, and actually have it be encoded in the genome itself, which is exciting. 
So that is kind of one of the things I'm working on. But um, the larger context, mollusks have so much to teach human beings. There's a lot of bizarre and fascinating things that they do. Um, so I'm just going to share a couple with you. So for instance, I'll, often they will hold um, endosymbionts, like corals hold on to endosymbionts, and, um, and photosynthesize. And so you can see some of these beautiful colors from their endosymbionts here in these giant clams. They have really interesting population genetics and the biology of the shell itself, this biomaterial, that human beings would love to be able to make something as um, intricate and patterned as a mollusk shell, and we still have not figured it out. That's something we'd love to know. Um, but these beautiful tropical um, land snails are a model for that. They're disease vectors, so they carry um, a lot of different tropical diseases and things like schistosomiasis, so we're, people are interested in investing in how to maybe control the um, the transmission of those diseases by understanding their biology. Of course, they're really important for aquaculture around the world. They're also interested um, in things like trying to mimic the behavior and biology of things like octopus, like having soft robotics. And, um, and then they have also been used for just the chemicals that they produce. For instance, um, cone snails, which will uh, hit their prey with a harpoon and inject uh, a toxin to stop them. It turns out that some of those toxins that paralyze um, their vertebrate prey um, those same toxins in humans will actually inhibit our pain receptors. Um, so people are interested in that kind of a, a natural products aspect of studying them. So in the last kind of section of me talking about um, organisms that I, we would like to move into, I'm going to talk a little bit about nudibranchs, which are a really fascinating, diverse group of mollusks that we're just starting to understand, and my lab is involved in kind of turning one species into a model system. So I told you a little bit about octopuses and um, cephalopods over here on the right, and we talked a little bit about gastropods, the snail being one of them. But there's another set of gastropods are these nudibranchs or heterobranchs that include aplesia. So aplesia is a sea hare. You might have seen it in the tide pools if you're here. It's also been um, used uh, for Nobel Prize winning work about um, learning and memory. There are some other famous heterobranchs, like the solar-powered sea slug. So this is one that holds on to um, chloroplasts and uh, is like a plant. This is the plantiest animal you can get and uses um, chloroplasts to make uh, energy. And then things like sea angels or pteropods, they've completely lost their shell. They're um, predators in the marine food web, and uh, people have also been studying them as kind of bioindicators for uh, climate change. So... Nudibranchs are in this group. None of these three are nudibranchs, but in next to them is this group called nudibranchs, and they are themselves quite diverse. They are shellless. Um, they have shells as embryos, but they lose their shell, and they have incredible um, adaptations to having lost a shell. So like cephalopods, which we think have been driven to their unusual abilities because they have no longer have the protection of the mollusk shell. Nudibranchs are, again, a completely independent loss of the shell, and they've done some really cool things. Um, like, for instance, this purple, um, kind of bluish-purple individual right here um, specializes on eating Portuguese man-o-war. So somehow it lives on Portuguese man-o-war its whole life and is not affected by its toxins. Um, it, in fact, eats the Portuguese man-o-war and holds on to the stinging cells and the toxins in the stinging cells and uses it for its own defense. Um, here are some other organisms that have amazing coloration. Some of them like to blend in with their environment and will do amazing mimicry, just as elaborate as butterflies. Um, and sometimes they are then, again, processing toxic chemicals. So some of them specialize on toxic sponges. And not only do they hold on to those toxins and are not affected by them, but they use those toxins somehow to fend off predators. Sometimes they make the compounds even more toxic in their own cells. There's some really interesting 
biology of what they do. And a few of them have been model systems for behavior. So um, these are ones that have very distinctive um, escape responses or swimming responses. And neuroscientists have used them to um, actually sharp electrode or put electrodes into their neurons and, um, and understand their behavior and circuits of behavior. So um, we have some, me and my colleagues have some NIH funding to try and understand the developmental basis of that. But they're also really fun to have in lab. Here's one um, that an undergrad of mine took. Um, just sitting in a tank, going after some shrimp, and it has this unusual Venus fly trap type of um, hood that it goes, uh, usually sifting through sand, but here just going through the open water and grabbing its food. So they have amazing adaptations, but one of the problems with studying them has been uh, they're not great model systems, the species that people have been working on. So they're hard to rear in the lab. Um, their prey is not in culture. They sometimes they eat very specific types of cnidarians, which are very hard to culture on their own. They have long generation times. They're large. Um, and they're too precious for undergraduates to use, and um, often their developmental process is scarce. And so if you need to turn things into kind of a genetic model system, you need to be able to manipulate cells. And just like I showed you, Vanessa put mRNAs for those fluorescently tagged proteins into the cells. You need to be able to deliver those reagents into the cells themselves, and it's not been possible. So an um, undergraduate in my collaborator's lab when they were at Georgia State, Amira, found Bergia as Stefanier is the model system for nudibranchs. And one of the reasons that she found it was that they happened to specialize and only eat a um, type of anemone called aptasia. And um, aptasia is kind of a junky, not so attractive uh, anemone that will junk up your coral tanks, including at the birch. We give uh, bergia to the birch often. We exchange that we give them bergia to get rid of their aptasia, and we take their extra aptasia to feed our bergia. Um, they specialize just on this, on this particular anemone. So you can put the bergia into your beautiful ornamental coral tank, and it'll zoom around and just eat the aptasia and not touch any of your beautiful corals. So it's very specifically adapted to this one animal. So that was great. So people had actually been growing this for many, many years. So we thought, huh, if you can grow it generations after generation, then that would be perfect for us. So we turned um, this organism into a model system, I think, in the last kind of two years. We started just before the pandemic. Um, but we knew there was commercial breeding. The Aptasia itself, its food was easy to raise. We found out that its generation time was quite short. So if you want to do genetics or make um, genetically modified lines, you aren't spending, You can do it in a PhD. I mean, one thing is if I can't do it in a length of a PhD, then it's going to be hard for me to make progress. So um, the, the animals are small and they're easy to culture. And in fact, during the pandemic, many of my students took their animals home with them and fed them and kept them alive in their dorm rooms or their parents' kitchens for the entire pandemic. Um, in fact, there's a whole paper we have that was generated from one undergraduate while he was in his parents' house in the Bay Area. So they're easy to work with, and they passed the undergraduate research test uh, with flying colors. So we did um, the type of work that developmental biologists would do. We um, learned how to grow them. We studied their development in detail. The most important thing here is this picture on the bottom right, where um, I'm showing a picture of kind of the wormy um, side of the animal. So this is right after metamorphosis. It had, had a shell. It kind of cracks out of its shell and becomes this little wormy-like thing, very unmollusk-like. Um, but on the bottom right picture, we see here a membrane YFP. So this is another derivative of GFP, but yellow um, 
fluorescent protein instead of green fluorescent protein. And this, again, is mRNA that had been injected 10 days before into its egg. And it is not only able to express it, but can hold on to these um, proteins for many, 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 many days. And so this was the uh, kind of watershed for us that this could be a model system. If you can inject the cells and get a protein, a fluorescent protein to be expressed and made, then we can do all of the other genetic manipulations and CRISPR and other things we'd love to do. So this was a major win for us. And this is the first nudibranch that anybody or heterobranch that we um, know of at all that's been able to do this. Um, so we're really excited about it. So then to the genotype translates into phenotype. Um, one of the things we did was to make the first um, ever nudibranch genome, which we're really excited about. And um, the details on this kind of busy slide aren't that important, but um, the, what I just want to say is the two axes here are how long the genome is, so how, um, let's see, how well assembled it is. So you have lots of pieces of DNA, and what eventually we would want whole chromosomes, right? That's kind of what we know, how many chromosomes there are in humans and other animals. We want chromosome level. So we've gotten chromosome level. And the other axis just shows um, how many, um, how complete the genome is, like whether you have homologs of other genes known to be found in, um, in other animals. And so what we're showing up here is Bergia being here at the top, uh, kind of right top of this graph means it's one of the best mollusk genomes that has been done so far. So we're really excited about that. And the thing we were really fascinated about is we did this analysis. One of the postdocs in the lab, um, Jessica Goodhart, did a phylogenetic analysis to ask um, how many genes that Bergia has, how many of those are shared um, with other uh, nudibranchs within this group. So that's what this yellow is showing, other um, kind of this phylogenetic group of called the Aeolidae. How many of its genes have homologs that go back as far as when the Aeolids uh, evolved? And then how many genes in Bergia are actually shared with other nudibranchs, so go back to the, to the ancestor of all nudibranchs, so that's in green, then all gastropods, and eventually all mollusks. And as I said, Mollusks evolved before the Cambrian explosion, so we can now test kind of the order in which these genes have evolved and been gained in the genome and try and understand which ones are quite ancient, um, are shared with other organisms, and which ones might be the key to these various innovations at different uh, levels. And the exciting thing about that, um, again, not important that you know all, that you um, look at all of this data, but the important thing is that um, the kind of the salmon-y color at the top, those are genes that have no homologs in any other animal. So there's a whole set of many, many, you know, thousands of genes that we cannot find any version of in any other type of animal. Um, and so we're really interested in understanding kind of how those novel genes are used and what they could be doing um, to study a lot of the types of things I mentioned. So um, Bergia also sequesters the stinging cells from the aptasia. It has, um, nudibranchs have very complex uh, nervous systems to try and find their, their prey and their uh, conspecifics to mate. And we're really interested in uh, processes like how the shell got lost how do you turn off the process of making shells? So we're really interested in looking at these novel genes, so to try to add to the understanding of how um, cell types work, and not only the things that we already know exist in other animals and those other model systems which have been studied uh, to exhaustion, but really new biology that could be the process of um, how they have immune systems that can respond to these toxins or to the stinging cells, and new things that the nervous system is doing to navigate a marine environment. And again, since there's very few marine systems, we're hoping to find a lot of new biology that could be really exciting. And in the last couple slides, I'll just mention we're doing that by some um, kind of novel techniques. So on the left and right, I'm showing a process, um, some data from um, a technique called single cell sequencing. So this is where you break up all the cells in an animal and you um, 
put them into a microfluidics device that encapsulates each cell all by itself. And then you break that cell apart and you sequence all of the gene, all the mRNA. So we talk about that central dogma, the mRNA stage of that process in each cell. Um, and then we can map all of those um, genes back onto the animal by doing something called in situ hybridization. So that's what the picture is in here in the center by a collaborator of ours at UMass. So all the different colors are particular gene products. So this is not live. This is fixed and dead. They're not GFPs. Um, but it's showing where the genes in these clusters um, that we're showing on the, on the right, where they're actually localized, in this particular case, in the brain of this animal. And then um, we're using things like GFP to do lineage tracing. So in this, um, this is an early, in the center in the bottom, a picture of a, of, of a baby nudibranch um, with some of its brain cells marked by lineage tracing, like with GFP. So we're trying to map these genes um, to these uh, parts of the animal. And then also, we, the next thing we'd love to do is look at all of those novel genes and say, are novel genes, for instance, associated with novel tissues? Or are novel genes evolving in all parts of the genome and necessary for all different parts of, of the animal. Some of those questions. So in the last two minutes I have, I just want to um, bring it back to my educational interests. Um, I have been very fortunate to have great collaborators, and I really love to engage students at all levels in this process. And what's really fun about um, completely new biology is that basically every time you hand a student a specimen and send them off a question, even as a high school student or as an undergraduate, they're the first person in the world ever to ask that question and have that data. And it's a very empowering experience for someone who's young to get that feeling of research early on. And as I mentioned, for me, it really was the thing that hooked me in being a scientist. Um, and I also am terrible at languages, so medieval studies turned out wouldn't have been good for me because you have to read a lot of different languages. So. Um, um, so one thing that I did when I started here was um, start a a lab course um, that is based on the idea of doing research. So they call these um, course-assisted undergraduate research experiences, or cures. Um, and here's a picture on the right of some high school students from High Tech High, and my um, undergraduates from UCSD, and uh, graduate students, and two of my postdocs. And the whole point is to give undergraduates who are at UCSD the experience of being in a lab for 10 weeks. And at many universities, there's um, summer programs called Research for Undergraduate Experiences. But UCSD being on the quarter system, it actually prevents most of those undergraduates from participating because those programs often are at schools that have semester-long systems, so um, they can't participate. And there's 6,000 undergraduates in biology at UCSD and not nearly enough labs um, to actually take them in the lab to do research. So I've made this course um, to do this type of research and allow more undergraduates to get that real experience of doing research. And um, they did some really wonderful experiments with us and will be co-authors on papers. And it gives a larger group of people the access to that, to that process. Um, and it also gives students who may not have the uh, ability to volunteer in labs. So for instance, when I was an undergraduate, I had the privilege and ability to just volunteer in a lab and I was free help. Um, but a lot of students um, you know, have to choose between having a job and volunteering. They can't afford to just volunteer in a lab, which is what a lot of research experience at UCSD involves is free time. Um, so uh, funding from the NSF, a career grant, and from my NIH grants allows me to pay the students that work in my lab so that they um, can choose you know, not to scoop ice cream at uh, Cold Stone if they want. They can come do research with me. Or if they don't want to do that, they can take this class and, and learn research. So with that, I will just um, thank the people in my lab who did this work, my funding sources, and all of you for being here tonight. And I'll leave you with a cute picture of uh, Bergia taking down an aptasia. And, uh, and I will also photograph my undergraduate in the lab. And then I will take any questions you have.
Could you talk more about um, what you hope to do using CRISPR and, and, and the, what would be the application? And also talk a little bit about the possible ethical issues that might come up using CRISPR and genetically modifying some of these organisms. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Okay, so for instance, I'm funded by the National Institutes of Health um, to make transgenic nudibranchs, um, and that means to put a transgene, a gene that doesn't exist, into them and modify their genome, so a form of GFP. Um, they're particularly interested in a form of GFP that's been hooked up to a calcium sensor, so it's called a G-CAMP, um, or a calcium-gated um, biosensor that allows um, neural firing to be seen in the live animal every time um, a neural impulse is given from one cell to another, calcium runs in, and this particular protein um, senses the calcium and it's fused to GFP and it actually lights up and kind of bursts whenever there's a, a, a burst of neural patterning. So this has been used in all sorts of vertebrate systems to understand the nervous system and this would be the first application of it to, um, to a nudibranch. And as I said, there have been models for ner the nervous system for decades. So um, for instance, the NIH wants us to be able to, to kind of bring that research that we already know about neural patterning in mollusks um, kind of to the, to the modern era by having... Um, these types of uh, tools in them to understand how um, brains are organized in a completely different way than vertebrates. So one thing, you know, we don't necessarily want to build everything like a human brain. We want to understand how does a cephalopod or a nudibranch or a fly run its brain, and can we learn anything about that to, um, to model new types of neural networks or to drive robots or um, different neural patterning. So that's the answer to that. And then um, the second answer is that, um, you know, the ethical aspects of modifying these organisms falls into kind of the pattern of what people have been doing to protect animals um, in modified research and all the model systems that we have um, from companies like Pfizer using things, you know, like the work that led to being able to have an RNA-based uh, uh, vaccine, um, all of the work that led to that was done in organisms. And, um, and it's not that far away from the types of modifying that humans have been doing to any of our crops and livestock for the, all, all of time. So I see it kind of all connected in um, and how we've been modifying the natural world from the beginning. Do they feel pain? Um, well, it's hard to ask them, but they certainly have a complex nervous system, so they can, um, we presume that yes, they, they probably do feel pain, yes. Um, from a physical standpoint, the green fluorescent protein, I imagine there's a, a time constant involved that it turns on green, and then eventually it goes dark, but depending upon how long that time is, it may set a limit on how fast certain biological processes you can look at before it's not a useful tool anymore. That's a, that's a great question. So um, my understanding, I'm not a GFP expert, but my uh, understanding is that once the, for, once the protein is made, um, it will fluoresce, so it has to be, you know, it's in the genome, and it gets turned into mRNA, and it gets turned into protein, and it gets folded, and that takes a certain half-life, there's a time that takes. Um, once that protein is there, it will fluoresce um, at the same rate, unless you, for instance, shine what we're doing, we're shining light on it, so we're actually, um, we are diminishing it or bleaching it by shining light on it. But if we never looked at it and they were just sitting in the, in the refrigerator, we were looking at it, it would stay bright the entire time until the normal processes in the cell turn over proteins. So 
our cells just naturally are recycling proteins all the time um, to get rid of things that have broken down or um, to make room for new things to happen or cells to respond to the next thing that needs to respond to. So the diminishing, from my understanding, is actually just the normal turnover that happens in the cell, but not actually a loss of fluorescence from the protein itself, as far as I know. But there might be more GFP experts in the room than me who might know. Are you locked into those specific animals, or are you always looking for new ones for a different avenue? Yeah. Um, well, I definitely had no inkling that I would be working on nudibranchs, but um, lucky to have gotten a job at UCSD. A neuroscientist um, that I work with now, Paul Katz, uh, was at a seminar on Upper Campus, and he just Googled mollusks development, UCSD, and found me and asked me to breakfast and said, would you like to write this grant? And then I said, sure, and never thought we'd get it, and then we got it. So, yes, I'm open to new, to new, um, to new questions all the time. Yeah. I hope I won't be asking the same questions in 20 years that I am now. So, yes. And the biology of nudibranchs is just so fascinating. There's so many questions to ask about. Well, I'm going to ask a question. Uh, this is for Harry because I'm, sh I'm sure that... Uh, He's very interested in uh, looking at the possibility of a nudibranch exhibit at some point it. in the future. Can I, take, can I take that to go my extra slides real quick? Sure. I'm going to show you. Okay, here's some really cool nudibranchs. For instance, nudibranch on the right all by itself, nudibranch on the left hiding in a bunch of corals that it's completely mimicking, so you can't see it. <laughs> Uh, here's another one, this Melaby, the one that I showed you is grabbing the shrimp on down the bottom left, um, and other ones that are hiding, kind of drab and uninteresting. This one on the top right is my favorite one, it's clear. So all of the, just the white that you're seeing is actually its muscles, and the rest of it you're just seeing right through the nudibranch. So somehow it's modified its life to be clear. Here's another example of it. So the muscles are what's this white frilly stuff, and the rest of the animal is completely clear. Um, here's some other beautiful ones showing amazing coloration patterns and these um, structures right here, these little bunny ears, um, hold all these receptors for chemoreception, so to smell and find their, um, their mates uh, and food and predators and just amazing coloration. And then here's an example of the one that eats the Portuguese man-o-war. Um, there's amazing adaptation to these toxins. And then I'll just end on a couple um, romantic stances of different uh, nudibranchs, but they're just amazing coloration and their behaviors are amazing. So yes, Birch should have an exhibit on nudibranchs. I have a question uh, regarding the new genes. How you um, explain those um, new genes that are unique to a species, how they acquire that through the evolution? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it can happen all different sorts of ways. Um, it can be a duplication of an existing protein. So let's say a part of the DNA just gets uh, copied. Now there's two copies of that gene, and one of the genes will go on maybe in its original form or change slightly, and the other part of the gene um, might lose domains or add domains, and they start becoming different from one another um, in that particular species, that one copy now is just completely different. Um, another way it can happen is retroviruses can come into the genome and insert itself and get incorporated and end up making proteins. So actually a lot of the proteins that are necessary for um, mammalian reproduction that fuse um, in your um, 
placenta are actually that allow those cells to fuse to one another to make pregnancy and primates possible are actually retroviruses that um, have fusion proteins that allow cells to fuse to one another and have multiple nuclei. So it can happen like that. Um, and then all sorts of ways in between from completely novel, kind of from outer space uh, injection of DNA to just the natural processes of, of divergence between existing genes. I want to thank you, Didi, for, for, for a wonderful talk. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.